Hi, this is Steve Robinson with another in a series of podcasts from CD Records. If you're new to our podcast, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, and the website is cdrecords.org. And every time CD comes out with a new album, we do one of these podcasts, and that's what we're doing today. And the new album is called Songs from Chicago. It's a very simple title. The album itself is very profound and deep and beautiful, and it features Thomas Hampson baritone, and he's accompanied at the keyboard by Kwang Ha Wong. And we're here with Jim Ginsberg, who produced this album and is the president of CD Records, and none other than Thomas Hampson. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Tom, I wanted to ask you about the concept for this album, and in the notes you say that it rose out of a conversation you had with Jim Ginsberg about making a recording about Chicago composers, and the idea just sprung forth from there. But tell us how you developed it. Well, the whole thing, getting to know Sadie Records, was actually your fault. You invited me to one of the yearly functions that Jim does, and I was excited to go, and I was not that familiar with the catalog and was astounded, and I loved the concept of it. And one thing went to another, and Jim and I had lunch with his wonderful wife, Patrice, who has also just debuted a fantastic album. Is that not true? That is true. And also with Kwang Hao. And I looked at him and said, so what about Ernst Bacon and John Alden Carpenter? And to the motive of be careful what you wish for, I said, well, I guess we better plan and see what kind of song composers we can actually claim in Chicago, which for me was just another wonderful kind of chapter to open up for myself of American poets and composers from different regions of the country, having spent so much time in this literature over the years. It's a fun thing to do to actually put them in physical places. So it's been a labor of love. It was a lot of fun to program. As I took the two obvious characters, Ernst Bacon and John Alden Carpenter, and especially with John Alden Carpenter, this song cycle, Githan Jolly, which has been on my heart and mind for several years. I knew that Margaret Bonds had not been born in Chicago, but I didn't actually realize that she was so domesticated there and had so many professional triumphs there. And of course, that led to Florence Price. And Florence Price is enjoying a bit of a renaissance now, which I think is better late than never, but wholly and wonderfully deserved Margaret as well. It's not lost on me that Margaret Bonds was a teacher of Ned Roram. So these are people in very good company. Louis Campbell Tipton is a completely forgotten chapter of creativity in America. A lot of European artists back in the day when they would come and do recitals in America would actually choose Louis Campbell Tipton's songs as sort of a tip of the hat to American songwriting. So there's a lot of concentric circles here, and Chicago is the fulcrum. There's a beautiful integration of music here because we have some of the composers setting music by Walt Whitman, two composers setting music by Langston Hughes. Actually, three composers setting Langston Hughes. There's a beautiful coherence or connectivity to this album. It all holds together very beautifully. Each song, to me, is a gem. Each set of songs is just beautiful. And as an album, the concept just has a ring to it that's just wonderful. Well, I appreciate that, and I must say that I was more than delighted as I started collecting all the songs and reading them, looking at them, that this common denominator, especially of Langston Hughes and Walt Whitman, showed up. I have had sung a couple of other songs of Ernst Bacon on Whitman texts, so I had all of his Whitman settings. I've always responded very strongly. Ernst Bacon is not a very well-known composer. Some pieces better than others. Among guitarists, he's very well-known. He's written some really wonderful guitar music. All the aficionados of American song know his name and give him very high marks, but you don't see him show up on recitals very often. His passionate loves of American poetry were Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman. And what's quite remarkable is how his musical language is so significantly different and apropos to those two different poets. And for a minute, I thought about trying to expose that a little bit and exploit that and examine what's that like in terms of musical language. But then my heart and mind just went to my great idol, Walt Whitman, and I think his settings are so appropriately lyric and angular at the same time. They have that sort of Walt Whitman cantankerousness about them, extremely direct musical settings. And I just thought I'm going to concentrate on Walt Whitman. And Margaret Bonds and Florence Price were very close friends with Langston Hughes. He's my other great idol in American literature. So as it became obvious that I could actually center on those two poets especially and in the shadow of one of their idols, of humanity, Rabindranath Tagore, that part of the album just took a real center of gravity that was easy to program around, and I was grateful to find that. That was part of my own process and search. 
Well, since you mentioned Bacon might be a good time for the first musical excerpt, and I thought the last invocation would be a nice way to start the podcast musically. Well, let's hear it then. This is from the songs presented on this album by Ernst Bacon, who, by the way, his dates are 1898 to 1990, lived a very long life. So we'll hear the last invocation performed by our guest Thomas Hampson, baritone, and Kwang Ha Wong at the keyboard. music by Ernst Bacon to start this podcast, and it was from a set of seven songs set to the poetry of Walt Whitman, and that was called The Last Invocation, featuring Thomas Hampson, our guest today, baritone, and Kwang Ha Wong at the keyboard. Tom, what we were just talking about compels me to ask you about the Hamsong Foundation. Tell us what that is and how its mission relates to this album, Songs from Chicago. Oh, I appreciate the question. The Hamsong Foundation has been alive for over 10 years now. I founded this foundation so that like-minded individuals could participate in different song projects, and the song projects are all around poetry set to music. In the Song of America project, for instance, I use the byline, the history of American culture seen through the eyes of our poets and the ears of our composers. But in fact, you can say that about every culture. I think song is a remarkable art form born of two independent art forms, meaning music doesn't need words and words doesn't need music, and yet they meld together in a, if you will, very metaphorical conversation of who we are, what we think we are, and what we feel at any particular time. And if you take that as an identifier of an epoch or a culture itself, it's impossible not to know those people better, i.e. we know their story. Song of America is essentially saying, how can we know other people's stories if we don't know our own? Hamsong Foundation also, in and of itself, does wonderful education programs for music teachers, but also for non-music teachers. I love teaching social studies and history teachers and economic teachers, political science teachers, whomever they might be, non-musical teachers, how to teach their disciplines through music, through poetry in our country. We've gotten wonderful response. We're starting to do a lot more of those kinds of symposia. People can simply call us up and ask us if we can come out and do this weekend or that weekend. That's the mandate and mission of the Hamsong Foundation, which is growing, and hopefully we'll find more resources to help us grow faster and deeper. If you're listening and you'd like to contribute, don't hesitate to visit hamsong.org. 
So the Hamsong Foundation essentially is all about those kinds of projects. It's not just American song. That's our biggest project to date, but quite a bit of German, quite a bit of French, a lot of singers of songs over the years. The Hamsong Foundation website is a very deep resource of interviews from our wonderful colleague, BBC John Tolansky, as well as different essays and different projects that have been mostly by me, but other people as well, centered on different subject matters and different contexts of how song identifies people in their culture and their particular epochs. Songofamerica.net, which is run by the Hamsong Foundation, is our big kaleidoscopic home base for everything American song, built on a timeline of when the song was written, if you know that song, what other song did the poet write or what other song did the composer write, you can jump around. We have a dashboard down to the middle of it, takes you to other websites specifically related to the song you're researching. So it can be a lot of fun. We get a lot of wonderful feedback and we're about to launch songofamerica.net 2.0 on August 1. So everybody turn your dial. Speaking of things you're about to launch, I believe there's a tour coming up which is titled Beyond Liberty. How does that connect to the foundation's work? And specifically, is any of the repertoire on this album included? The project that I'm launching in Glimmerglass Festival, which is Cooperstown, New York, on 19 August 2018, is the newest iteration of Song of America Beyond Liberty. I've set up a little band that got six instruments, a cello and a violinist and a trumpet and a clarinet, and we got piano and a synthesizer, percussion, that's... And it's a one-man show. I'm going to narrate and tell stories. It's gotten increasingly difficult for me to come out and stand in front of a piano and sing a bunch of songs. I feel like I want to sit down in a chair and pour a cup of coffee and tell everybody where all this stuff comes from because every song I sing from America is like the tip of an iceberg. So we've taken all those funny metaphors and we put them into a script and I'm going to tell stories for 90 minutes and sing 20 songs and the crowd's going to sing some songs and as we move through different epochs of our country you'll hear some background music and some unusual tunes that you weren't waiting for like River on the Wall bash or take me out to the ball game or something like that. It should be a lot of fun to explore tough issues in our culture and yet this redeeming, unrelenting hopefulness that our country has always embraced. And there's no easier way and no more fun way than to sing our songs and know our stories and find out who these people were who have lived before us and will live with us as long as America exists. And how do the Chicago composers on this album fit into that story, and are any of them included in the Beyond Liberty program? Any particular region in our country has its own great composers and poets. Chicago happens to have a whole bunch of them. These people that lived in Chicago embraced a particular love of Chicago specifically and of the Midwest in general. The poetry of Langston Hughes and Walt Whitman, I think, obviously had their ear to the ground of who we are and how we live with one another in this country. By the way, that would be the rhetorical answer to beyond liberty. What is beyond liberty? Well, it must be civility. It must be neighborhood. It must be living as Walt Whitman's The Divine Ship says. We're all on the same ship. We're all together in this. Margaret Bonds will be on the program. I don't think Ernst Bacon is on our program. Langston Hughes it represents three different songs. Walt Whitman shows up in a couple of other settings. There's a cross-pollination. I have to think Togor wouldn't fit because it's all American poetry. And the Langston Hughes of John Alden Carpenter, I felt that Margaret had her hooks in there a little bit deeper. <laughs> Unfortunately, as fun as this project is, we've only got 90 minutes for a show, so what got cut was far more painful than, than what stayed in the program. And this record certainly represents every possible part of the thesis of the Song of America project. I hope you're planning to tour this program, that it's not just one time only. That's the idea, is to birth this as a 50-state tour. I've been doing a lot of these concerts over the years. This is the newest iteration, and I think the most developed. We also are running in tandem with it. It's not a Hamsong Foundation concert, but this tour hopefully will make the presence of the Foundation and the Teachers' Symposia even more lively and more deep and in unusual regions and, and counties in this country. I think it's a very important mandate. But the Song of America Beyond Liberty is without question heading for a major tour, an eventual goal of all 50 states over the next three years. 
You've mentioned Langston Hughes a few times now, and we actually have settings by three different composers of Langston Hughes. I thought maybe it'd be a good time for another musical selection. Great. And the earliest on the album of these three composers is Florence Price. Can you talk a little bit about her and her relationship with Langston Hughes? And we'll be hearing her setting of his dream variations. She titles her version of that, My Dream. Florence Price is one of these beautiful evidences of creativity in our culture. There has never been a time in America where our creative geniuses and sensitive souls have not tried to tell us what it is like to be alive as an American at that particular time. Of course, the African-American canon of classical music, as rich and as beautiful and as important as it is to our culture, has not been by any means explored in the best way possible, even today. I'm very passionate about the African-American canon of classical music, and one of the icons of that would be Florence Price, an extraordinary individual, not just as African-American, but also as a woman, and her achievements in a time where both were deeply, fundamentally denied their equal rights. But here you have this extraordinarily talented woman writing incredibly beautiful music. And thank God somebody at the time of her writing found it pressing enough to invite her and her magnificent concerto and symphony to premiere with the Chicago Symphony back in the day in the early 1930s. It's wonderful that we're starting to explore more of her music. It's quite touching that Margaret Bonds was one of her pianists of choice and premiered her pieces. I'm sure they had wonderful conversations. Margaret Bonds essentially went on from her learning from Florence Price and took American song just to another accessibility, another level of expression. But let's listen to Florence Price first. Well, let's hear this music by Florence Price, but we're going to inject a little surprise because Margaret Bond set the same poem. Hers is called Dream Variation, also the poem by Langston Hughes. So let's listen now to My Dream by Florence Price and follow it with Dream Variation, the same poem set by Margaret Bonds. To fling my arms wide in some place in the sun to whirl and to dance till the white day is done, then rest, then rest at evening beneath a tall tree, white night comes on in the sun to whirl and to dance till the white day is done then rest at cool evening beneath a tall tree while night comes on gently 
heart like me That is my dream To fling my arms wide In the face of the sun Dance, whirl, whirl Till the quick day is done Rest at pale evening A tall, slim tree Night coming tenderly Black like me Night coming tenderly We've just heard two songs from a wonderful new album called Songs from Chicago. We heard a piece by Margaret Bond set to a poem of Langston Hughes, Dream Variation, and just before that, the same poem set by Florence Price. She calls it My Dream. Now I'm going to ask this question, Tom. You say in your notes, with the inclusion of Margaret Bond's and Florence Price, some may raise their eyebrows at a Caucasian male attempting to sing this very African-American rooted offering. Do you want to talk about that a minute? I only raised it in the notes because I know that it's going to happen. And I look forward to the conversation. And I think it's an important conversation. To me, especially in America, and if you will, especially because I want to be a great, 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 great grandson of Walt Whitman, it is a question of civil rights. Either we live in a society that embraces the myriadness of our cultures, blending in this wonderful world called America, or we don't. And American song reflects that. And I raised that in the notes because I want to say, look, this is Songs of America. That's why the project is called Song of America. That's why I've been calling it Song of America for 25 years, that you could call it Song in America. The particular prism through which you look at the diary of who we are as Americans is a fascinating, changeable prism of language sometimes, but certainly of various races and various cultures, unfortunately also epochs. Is it possible that we can embrace the good of people? Is it possible to say there are good people that lived in bad times? I think it is, and I think that knowing our songs and knowing our stories and knowing our poetries help us live among one another with contrary views of how we move forward, if you will. Before we move on to the major Langston Hughes setting on this album by Margaret Bonds, I think this would be a great time to point out that not only did the African-American composers on this album Bryson Bonds said his poetry, but so does John Alden Carpenter. And I thought in particular it might be fun, because of its rather racy lyrics, to play Jazz Boys. Can you talk a little bit about that song and that lyric? Yeah. My point is to embrace this effort of Americans about America and storytelling. And interestingly enough as well in the arts and especially in the composer-poet world that I love so much, you see a lot more of this interchange of black and white and mostly newer composers looking back to major poets and, and some contemporaries setting one another. But you have more of a, a richer dialogue of a Caucasian composers. Take, for instance, on this record, John Alden Carpenter, reaching out, embracing, loving the contemporary social poetry that Langston Hughes became instantly recognizable for, actually starting with The Negro Speaks of Rivers. He was 19 years old when this poem was written, and it just launched his career. It's also very interesting that somewhat similar to Walt Whitman, who had his biggest recognition outside of America before he became quite well known in America, his first major publications were in England, actually. And he was also, before he was very much recognized as our bard of democracy, he was already significantly set in German translation. Curiously, the exactly the same thing happened in the beginning of the 20s when Langston Hughes is becoming this very, very recognized major poet in our 
our culture, along with several of the other Harlem Renaissance poets, but immediately went into German translation and was published in Vienna. And it was known as Africa Zinkt, which someone can be upset by the title if they need to be. But the point was a very important African-American voice at that time considered the Negro voice of America articulating the part of society that wasn't recognized. And the Viennese felt very strongly about it. Hermann Rutter in the 50s set music to it. Zemlinski very early set in German translation, Langston Hughes poetry. So this cross-cultural and cross-racial dialogue is very much alive and part and parcel to the song tradition and to the song repertoire, which is also a very good message for people. So I'm particularly interested in this lyric because, as you know, when we first came across it, we came across a somewhat expurgated version of this poem and had to find the correct words. And it's got lyrics like, white girls' eyes call gay black boys, black boys' lips grin jungle joys, dark brown girls in blonde men's arms. How does this speak to the times, and what do you want to say about Carpenter's setting before we hear it? Thank you for reading that, and that's actually the original poem, and in the first publication of the piece, it was intact, but quite soon afterwards, it got sanitized. I hope we get some credit for actually going back and getting the words that John Alden Carpenter actually set. It was a quite demonstrative, a very specific effort to sanitize poetry and to not embrace or encourage this cross-cultural, well, bonding, if you will. But jazz clubs, and from where this poem came, and it came from that wonderful collection of jazz poems by Langston Hughes, who adored jazz. He loved the idea of writing words in a kind of rhythm and a relationship to one another that had jauntiness in it, that had a kind of slap your ears around, if you will, or your jarring kind of context. And, you know, these are his words. Jungle joys may offend somebody today. You know, the song makes me smile. I think it's beautiful. I can see it in front of my eyes. I think it's total celebratory. I think it's meant from John Alden Carpenter as a total unbridled ecumenical celebration. This is Jazz Boys, a poem by Langston Hughes, set by John Alden Carpenter and performed by our guest baritone Thomas Hampson with pianist Kwon Ha Wong. Sweet black boys in a cabaret Jazz band, jazz band, play, play, tomorrow who knows, so dance today. White girls' eyes call gay black boys, black boys' lips grin jungle joys. Dark brown girls in blonde men's arms, jazz band, jazz band, sing each Brown ones, what do you know about tomorrow where all paths go? Jazz boys, jazz boys, play, play, tomorrow who knows? Tomorrow is darkness, joy today. That was Jazz Boys, a poem by Langston Hughes from Four Negro Songs by John Alden Carpenter and performed on a brand new CD album called Songs from Chicago with Thomas Hampson, our guest baritone, and Kwang Ha Wong piano. And you're listening to a podcast from CD Records, and you can get any CD record, including this one, by going to their website at cdrecords.org, and that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, cdrecords.org. And we're here with Jim Ginsburg, too, who's the president and founder of Sadie Records. To conclude the Langston Hughes section of this podcast, the biggest setting we have is Margaret Bond's version of the very famous Langston Hughes poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Thomas, if you could talk a little bit about this song and your relationship to it. I think the first time I heard this song, I remember picking up a recording of various settings of Langston Hughes by various composers, and I heard Daryl Taylor, who's become a good friend and colleague, who also, by the way, is the president of the African American Song Alliance, which not only I'm a proud member, but the Ham Song Foundation has supported in significant ways to film their symposia. If you go into Ham Song Foundation and look up the African American Song Alliance, you'll actually get 
several hours of their last meeting or symposium that they had on African-American song and some wonderful performances. So put your money where your mouth is. I believe so firmly in this canon. And of course, one of the iconic pieces in the canon of African-American song is The Negro Speaks of Rivers. What strikes me, getting to know Langston Hughes' poetry, and, and yes, some of it is biting and some of it is a wonderful and powerful and deeply necessary mirror for the disenfranchised of our society, or quite frankly, just the general idea that in an ecumenical civil society that we profess to be, that we still have so many, in so many ways, disenfranchised from what is considered, quote unquote, the American way. I don't need to get into that or or lecture on that, but what I respond to in Langston Hughes' poetry is even when he's showing that kind of specificity, there is this glorious, righteous, celebration of roots, of heritage, of color. Negro Speeds of Rivers, Langston was passionate about the African element of the black nation, if you will, and the African-American experience. And this, his poems are filled with Egyptian references and gold and colorful and beautiful bright faces. And this song, it's huge pyramids. And yet out of this great African culture, if you will, this reminiscence of one of the great moments when a great white man called Abraham Lincoln came down on the Mississippi, and even the Mississippi turns gold in the sunset. So there's just all these wonderful alliterations and references to joy, to righteousness, if you will, to the rightness of, and the belief, and the hope in the goodness, and yet from a very disenfranchised disallowed side of our culture. The irony is too strong and too obvious to dwell on. Langston, I think, captures so much of everyone's hope that it will eventually sometime be the right place to be, that America will be, even though he says America will always be, and he means that ironically as well as hopefully. Margaret Bonds, of course, wrote this beautiful song, and he loved the song, and she played it for him. It was performed quite often, and he knew it very well, and it's very much embraced by my African-American colleagues. I love to sing this song. I think it's a beautiful song. Margaret Bonds, The Negro Speaks of Rivers, Poetry of Langston Hughes, sung by our guest Thomas Hampson, baritone, and Kwang Ha Wong, piano. This is from Songs from Chicago.
the singing of the Mississippi. When Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've That was The Negro Speaks of Rivers, a poem by Langston Hughes, set by Margaret Bonds and performed by our guest Thomas Hampson, baritone with Kwang Ha Wang piano. The major cycle on this album, over 20 minutes long, is by John Alden Carpenter. Uh, Thomas, can you speak about the whole cycle as well as the specific song we'll be hearing from it, which is the first song, When I Bring to You Colored Toys? You know, it's very funny. I sang this song recently at the fundraiser for the Merritt School. I sang When I Bring to You Colored Toys from Gitanjali, the song cycle. And an Indian woman came and she says, you know, it's actually pronounced Gitanjali. And I've always said Gitanjali, but it's said Gitanjali. Okay, I'll try to remember that. It took me a couple of years just to get Rabindranath Tagore around my lips, which is such a wonderful name. He was an extraordinarily important Bengali poet. He was sort of a mystical forerunner to William Butler Yeats. He toured England and America extensively, reading his poems and his readings. You can even go on to YouTube and hear him live reading Bengali poetry that he was famous for, a lot of love poetry, Eastern existential love poetry, if you will. Gitanjali is a large collection of life's poems. I don't remember if the whole thing has been translated as The Gardener or there's a section within it, but it is probably the most well-known of the translated poems of Tagore. It was this volume that he won in 1913, I believe, the Nobel Prize for Literature, which was an astounding achievement. I believe he was the first non-European poet to receive that prize. And he got it in 1913, and in 1914 already, John Alden Carpenter started working on this cycle. And he took from different parts of this collection, I believe there's well over 70 poems, he took six and made this wonderful collection called Gitanjali, or Gitanjali. What I did not know until I got a hold of the first edition is that he had incorporated a credo at the beginning and an epilogue at the end, which was, I suppose, to be either read aloud or certainly read by the person entering into this cycle. Not unlike, quite frankly, some of the preludes that we have, uh, for instance, to the Schönemüllerin or to the Dichterliebe. There's also a prologue originally in that poetry. So there is some tradition to that, and it's quite nice. And on this record, I took the liberty of reading both of those elements in for the sake of completeness. When I Bring to You Colored Toys is the first of these six songs, and it was probably the most famous. It was excised and sung in recitals as really quite standard repertoire for many years. The song cycle, while not delineated specifically for a woman, is delineated for a middle voice. It was the property, if it was ever property, of singers, mostly known by mezzo-sopranos. Rose Bampton was a great singer of these songs, for instance, and of course Marilyn Horn sang one or two of these songs. I believe, with all clear conscience and not trying to be clever, I do believe this is the first actual complete recording of the cycle in modern time, certainly the first time it's ever included readings of the poetry, and if I'm not mistaken, also the first time that a man has actually sung all of the poems. The poems are by no means gender-specific. If anything, they're parental-specific. I have my chops for that, having four grandchildren and four children. So the poems are all various existential questions about life, and they feel very much 
of an older experienced person asking a younger, less experienced person to reflect on their own life and the values of their life. And then there's a couple of songs that are just totally rejoicing in the wonder of the innocence of childhood. All of it is under a beautiful halo of love songs, both to children and to a partner. As you would expect with Tagore poetry, the thrust is this live in yourself, in your time, be in love with your life, and love that which is part of your life at any time that you're aware. That sounds rather funny, but I'm mixing and translating and trying to get this Eastern feeling about this kind of poetry. Curiously, he could also get extremely acerbic in this process. That's not in this cycle, but for instance, Rabindranath Tagore is the source of poetry for the Zemlinsky Lyric Symphony, which is a husband-wife dialogue that <laughs> ends in separation and obviously divorce, but really it's quite a torrid cycle for orchestra by Zemlinsky. So Tagore is unbelievably interesting. John Alden Carpenter, quite frankly, changed the face of American song. He was the first to embrace more colors within the harmonies and the melodies, certainly French influence, if you will. But there's a lyricism to his setting, which was unique at the time and really propelled us forward into an even more rejoicing way to look at how American song was being written. Cannot say that that was not already influenced by Walt Whitman, who released composers to write in through composed form, meaning not just verse after verse. John Alden Carpenter just takes that to a new kind of lyricism within the American idiom that is very beautiful. What I appreciate in the cycle is hearing his passion for allowing the human voice to embrace long lines of emotion. The words are beautiful and texts are beautiful, but what the text requires an emotional response in the musical language is really quite remarkable. And that requires a pretty generous way of singing. And I, I think it fits also a baritone. I think anybody should sing it that feels drawn to these poems. But there is a a generosity of a classic trained voice, and maybe even one could say operatic voice, that this cycle offers and embraces that I think is very rewarding for the listener and certainly very rewarding for those of us privileged enough to sing it. Well, that was our guest, Thomas Hampson, baritone on this wonderful new album, Songs from Chicago. He'll be accompanied in this last selection on this podcast by Kwang Ha Wong Piano. And this is from... A cycle of songs by John Alden Carpenter, set to poetry by Rabindranath Tagore, and this is entitled When I Bring to You Colored Toys.
That was When I Bring to You Colored Toys by John Alden Carpenter, performed by Thomas Hampson, baritone with Kwang Ha Wong piano. Thomas, there are so many aspects to this album that one can learn from, but in your mind, what do you hope listeners gain most from this album? Oh, Steve, that's a wonderful question. And Jim and I have talked about this over the course of making the album, which, by the way, can I just throw some kudos this direction? Jim Ginsburg is a hell of a record producer. We had a couple of hard times on this record with my health and scheduling and so forth. And to be able to pick up where we left off and move forward and have the quality that Bill Malone and you have put together, Jim, I just want to get that publicly out. I'm impressed and grateful. So we had a lot of fun. I really appreciate that, Thomas. And I will say a word about Bill Malone, my spectacular engineer, who I think did a wonderful job of capturing your voice on this album, as well as balancing with the piano. Look, everything I do in American Song is because I believe so passionately that song tells our story and people can find their own story in any particular song or any poetry. When I say story, I guess I meet it in the Walt Whitman way that we are all myriad stories writing our own story for ourselves on a wall of our particular society, of our particular time, or the, maybe the metaphors or leading evidence of ourselves so that people following us will have an easier time or a better time. And I just feel so passionately about life, I guess. And it's not just getting older. I'm so grateful that I am an American. I'm so grateful that I was raised an American. I'm so grateful that I found these stories and these songs. And I know this wonderful collegium of like-minded people who have tried to tell the story in a language called music, in a poetry of different epochs and different cultures. That is more informative to me and more inspiring to me to understand other people's stories within my own culture of America than I did before. Of course, I love the song in general in all languages, but as an American, the myriad ways that one can be less stressed and less confused about confusing parts of different parts of the country is certainly in the hands of our poets and our composers. This particular album shines like a lighthouse out of the great American city, Chicago. It does not surprise me in the least. It's a wonderful city with a wonderful history. It embraces and embodies so much of what is ultimately American. The fact that these American composers have reached across cultural divides to articulate in their musical language or be inspired from words coming from so many different kinds of sources, but yet somehow eminently American, I think is deeply inspiring. And I hope that other people, one, simply enjoy the experience of the album. But if you want to dig a little deeper or reflect a little bit longer, I think you have every opportunity to do that. My projects now are about widening or helping keep the repertoire wide. It's about passing on everything that I've been so patiently taught over the years to the next generations, encouraging my next generation of colleagues to sing their songs. And the great news is there's no dearth of wonderful, wonderful young singers coming up, as so naturally it is, the next wave of terrific singers, and they love songs. I think we're going to have a lot of different attempts to have different recital formats or different recital venues or different ways that people come together, either paid or not paid, to sing and share songs. But the idea of one singing or telling stories to one another is as eternal as humanity is. It's funny that I should actually say that the Wawan Press, which was Farwell's great project, Wawan means in Plains Indian English, American Indian from the Plains translation specifically. Wawan means one sings to another. You are enlivening your, enriching your cosmos, your awareness. And that's what all these projects are about. And it's been a great privilege and pleasure to delve into this chapter, some of it unknown to me, which is a great enriching experience for me, but some of it just making it listenable for the first time. Speaking of projects, besides the Beyond Liberty concert leading to a major tour, what else is upcoming for you? 
Well, never a dull moment. I have, <laughs> I'm very grateful that my performance calendar is still so busy, but also with so many different exciting projects. This coming season, I have two world premiere operas. The first one is, I just had a rehearsal with him yesterday, Rufus Rainwright has written a new opera on the Emperor Augustus Hadrian, centering on his love affair with Antinous and the rather crimmy story of how Antinous died and the historical perspective of Hadrian. Wonderful character and a wonderful piece, and that will be in Toronto this fall. Nico Regan and John Cairn have written a new opera on Da Ponte, which will be in Houston next spring. And it's actually a comedy, which is rare today, which is a lot of fun. It's about old man Da Ponte producing the first opera in New York called The Phoenix. And the fun part is that I sing the old Da Ponte, of course, and Luca Pizzoroni, my son-in-law, will be the young, dashing skirt-changing De Ponte. So we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Coming to Chicago for an American series in January. Very exciting. I'm in Israel, as I regularly am, with the Israel Philharmonic on tour with German music, but we're also having a big American evening. I did an American evening in Russia last spring, which is great fun. They want to do a return celebration of American spirit, it's called, in Russian, at the Stanislavski Theater in Moscow. I made my conducting debut with Leonard Bernstein's uh, Symphonic Suites uh, on the town. I just had the wonderful opportunity of doing the manuscript version of the Dichterliebe, all 20 songs, Schumann, with Marta Argerich. And in her crazy schedule, my crazy schedule, we want to do this some more. So, like I said, there's never a dull moment, and I'm ever so grateful that that's possible. Wonderful. So, finally, since you did this album here in Chicago and specifically of Chicago composers. What makes today's Chicago classical music scene special for you? Well, I come and go in Chicago, and I come mostly because I'm engaged in Chicago, and I'm always quite impressed. I don't want to sound somehow patronizing about it. I mean, Chicago seems to be very alive with the various orchestras you have, with the various small venues you have. There seems to be a very lively theater group as well. The educational systems, the merit school, and of course, Northwestern is alive and well. The Chicago Lyric is one of the great opera houses in the world. The Chicago Symphony goes without mention, you know, who they are. I'm so thrilled to come back to Ravinia every summer. Chicago is a regular stop for me, and it's a regular stop for me because it's such a wonderful, lively musical environment. I hope that you wonderful locals can keep it as lively and as ecumenical and all-embracing. It starts with education. We must do proactive outreach and give as many inroads into this marvelous repertoire and exploration and celebration of life in the classical musical canon that we possibly can. It is not a hobby. It is the blueprint of who we are as human beings. Nothing to be afraid of. It's just a wonderful kaleidoscope of human adventures in a very wonderful and challenging, I admit, idiom called classical music, but challenging in a very enriching and positive and, quite frankly, entertaining way. That was Thomas Hampson, our guest today, and he's talking about this wonderful new Sadie album, Songs from Chicago, Thomas Hampson baritone, Kwang Ho Wang at the keyboard, and it's on Sadie, that's C-E-D-I-L-L-E, and all Sadie recordings are available online, especially at sadierecords.org. Thomas, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity.